Hey, this is Nathan Oberson, your humble and obedient host. The booking is coming right up. But first, a few words to you about something that's very near and dear to my heart. It is a book about fatherhood. And who better to talk to you about it than Commander Daddy himself, Jake Menzel. Now, Jake, if there's some father out there, and he's a real capital L on his forehead, 90s style loser who doesn't know how to be a good father, what, what are the three tips you would give him for how to go from being a bad father to being a good father? Tip number one, find yourself a good church, son. A church that will discipline you and love you. Step number two, grow up, get over yourself, and be a man. Step number three, read Daddy Tried by Tim Bailey. Ooh, I like that third step. Daddy Tried has been called by no less than John Frame, the best book on fathering currently in print. That's right. So if you have not read Daddy Tried today, go get yourself a copy, a paperback copy from Amazon or Barnes & Noble, an e-copy from the Kindle Store or iBooks, or... Now, for the first time ever, listen to Daddy Tried be read by Tim Bailey himself through audible.com. Go to audible.com if you're the kind of person that likes audi, audi, aud, aud, audible, uh, I guess that's the adjective. If you're the kind of person that likes audible content, like from Audible or from other fine purveyors, you might like to listen to this book on audio. You could even, we would not resent it if you put off listening to a couple episodes of the bookening so you could become a good father. Arguably, being a good father is better than listening to dorks talk about literature. No doubt. No doubt. So step one, good church. Step two, be a man. Step three, pick up daddy tried. Step four, become a great father. Step five, listen to the bookening, which is coming up right now. Welcome to the Bookening. We're so glad that you're here. I'm not really going to talk about that. Or, try that again. <clears throat> hey, hello. Welcome to the Bookening. My name is Nathan Alberson. I'm your humble and obedient host, and I'm just so happy to be alive and so happy to be joined by my two best friends in the whole wide world. My two best friends in the whole wide world. My two best friends in the whole wide world. The first one is Brandon Chastine. Hey. Hi, Brandon. Hey. Welcome to the Bookening. Welcome to the Bookening. We got what you need. <laughs> Brandon, you're a very you're a very sexy girl. <laughs> but if you have the money, honey, we've got your disease. Great. That's what I've been told. <laughs> That's what you've been told? Yeah. Who the heck told you that? <laughs> you. I'm Just leaving. Now. Yeah. See you guys. <laughs> it's generally not traditional to say, that's what I've been told immediately after someone tells you something. I saw it in the future. Oh, you saw I learned that language from the aliens in Arrival. Oh, really? Yeah. Your favorite movie. My favorite movie. That's Your right. favorite movie, as we established last episode. <laughs> yeah. Brendan is a big Arrival fan, just so you know what goes on behind the scenes, behind the paywall, behind the scenes. When, when the mic's not on, we, we, we had a long discussion about Arrival. Brendan quite likes Arrival, and he thinks she told Jeremy Renner. I don't think she did. Listener, you be the judge. Watch Arrival if you want to, or don't. I really don't care what you do with your time. You should. I, yeah, I should care what they do with their time. No, I said they should watch the movie. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you should watch Arrival. You, I also do care. I would say, don't murder anyone. Yeah. Don't do drugs, unless it's like penicillin or something like that. Don't wear back backwards baseball caps. Call back to last episode. <laughs> and current episode. And current episode, because Jake is still wearing his backwards baseball cap a whole week later. <laughs> Hello, Jacob Menzel, pastor who's a master of reading. How you doing? Hello, Nathan. How are you? Still wearing my ball cap. He's still wearing his ball cap. <sighs> 
Because we totally didn't record that other part five minutes ago. (laughs) That was a week ago. Uh, How you been keeping there, Jake? How have I been keeping? How you been keeping? (laughs) I've never heard anybody say that in my life. (laughs) It's my new character. People love love my character work (laughs) on the bookening. I think that's everyone's favorite thing. So I'm just going (laughs) to... I think this is my my Southern Indiana guy who's here because he he just likes... He just thinks he needs some more book learning. So he's here to learn from from the pastor who's a master of reading. (laughs) I'm sorry, Jake. I'm taking up your valuable time, introduction time, with my nonsense. Jake, um, what did you think about Arrival? It was fine. Yeah, it's all right. We saw it on my birthday. I think it was we your did. treat as a birthday gift to me. Not a very good one, as it turned out. It's a little disappointing. It was a disappointing birthday gift, and I've resented it ever since. Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner and the guy, the director of... <laughs> Last time I take you to a movie that you want to go see <laughs> for your birthday. <laughs> <Crap>. <laughs> I mean, thanks. It was great. It was a noble effort. I think James Bond was still a week away, and James Bond ended up sucking anyway, too. That was Spectre, I believe, was the year of my birth. Not the year of my birth, but the year that we celebrated my birth. Last year was the year that we celebrated my birth. And I was so good, I think we might do it again this year. Um, I'm still wait- wasting your valuable introduction time, Jake, with my nonsense. He's still got That's this. That's right, I'm on Twitter now. <laughs> We've established that Jake does n- Jake's shoes do not glow in the dark. Jake, your thoughts? I have no thoughts. They're, they're shoes. You have, okay. You have no thoughts about the shoes or just no thoughts in general? <laughs> in general. Also, these are shoes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, you ready to dive back into the heart of darkness itself? Joseph Conrad's The Heart of Darkness? Yes. Yep. <laughs> Let's do it. <gasps> yay! Are we diving? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's all make the diving yay sound together. <laughs> One, two, three. Yay! yay! Folks, this is what you get when you give us money. Dude, we <laughs> ramp it all up to 11. So if you want more, Can just we keep down? giving us more money. And we thank you very much. We thank you for our Patreon. Actually, we should do Patreon shout-outs. Brandon, get ready for some shout-outs. You're our shout-out guy. Uh, shout-out to Beth. Beth! <laughs> shout-out to John. John! And those are the only two people that get shout-outs because they're the only two people that are paying enough for shout-outs. But if you are already supporting us and you want to pay a little bit more money, I think it takes 10 to get a shout out. That's what you could do. Or you could be someone who doesn't support us at all and suddenly pays us lots of money and gets a shout out. Anyway, thank you so much to our Patreon supporters. It doesn't mean a lot to us. It's been very exciting to see that you guys are supporting us. And uh, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the bookening to support us. Anyway, let's dive into Heart of Darkness. Yay. You can't really. We're still talking about Marlowe. Yeah, kind of. Absolutely. You can't really. You can't not mention the ending when thinking about Marlowe and the fact that he didn't tell her the final words. Let her think what she wanted to. Yeah, I find that part quite moving. It moved me as if it was a, yeah. a noble thing that he did. Yeah, whether or not it's actually moral is a different question. Right. What you should do in that situation, I'm not sure. But I was moved by what he did and the anguish that he had about it. I don't know. It just reminded me of, I don't, did you guys ever see The Searchers with John Wayne? Yeah. Do you remember the, the, the final image of The Searchers is John Wayne. He's rescued the girl that's been taken by the, the savage or whatever the uh, what are they supposed to be called now the engines he's he's rescued the girl and he's this 
crusty guy and he's brought her back to her family and they're all happy and he's just standing outside the framed by the doorway standing outside alone detached unable to enter into their happiness and he just kind of turns and walks away the quintessential american guy that's i that, that's why i kind of say marlo's in that lineage just kind of the detached outsider who's going to do the right thing and who's going to bring greater moral understanding to it at the end of the day than anybody else is even capable of but he's punished for that he's punished for that he these other guys are just blithely firing at natives and blithely going about their stupid existence marlo has greater moral moral understanding and he suffers for it he has to actually think about what they're doing and feel bad about it and feel anguish about it and make real moral choices and i like him because i think he does a good job he blows that whistle you know it'd be nice to say like the he'd lead a party to take down kurtz and take down the pilgrims and take down but you know not real life if there's one thing conrad's is a realist about sometimes the best you can do is blow that whistle and maybe save a few lives give a biscuit to a dying man i mean i think the question of the intended is a is a different one than blowing the whistle. I don't know what else you could have done. I, he could have marched down and tried to take everybody to task. Pulled out his six shooter and and you know pointed Ponsolo it at somebody's style, yeah. head and said, "You can kill them. You can kill me." Yeah, I but, understand but that. But some it's... of you are gonna. Die. I mean, he could have had one of those Wyatt Earp kind of moments or whatever. But with the girl, what I sort of felt when I was. <laughs> thinking about this like i finished it so he's gonna he's gonna this this girl is clearly caught up in the cult of kurtz. the cult of kurtz mm-hmm. you know he she is she's a worshiper and a believer just like lots of people in his past have been and it, they've all been ruined for it and she's being ruined by it and he's sort of letting her continue to be that and to think that she was the one special one that the that the special loved and the that understood the special truly and her name was on his dying lips and i think it might have been kind a mercy of, to tell yeah, her the truth yeah to pop that balloon and try to but that would have been hard work well that's why work that's why i think i don't know that's kind of why i want to put him in the lineage I, I know i keep coming up with reasons for putting him in my stupid lineage but i mean i think he is a modernist hero and that he's compromised like that and the choices that he makes are choices that are difficult tense existential choices that leave him detached and ironic and sad in some I ways c- i can't say that he he shouldn't be forgiven for not knowing exactly what to do in that moment he did he had no idea what he was walking into and that it was clear to us as readers that he had no idea what he was walking into. And he's it was really clear to him that he had no idea what he was walking he's into. He's really torn up in the moment, like Right. Ah, what do I do? Well, and at first he just wants to leave. He's like, Whoa, this is a house of mourning. It's been a year since you found out and you're wearing black and mm-hmm. everything is just getting darker and darker the more. What is going on here? But what's going on there is she's been caught up in the lie that is Kurtz. She's as much a slave and a worshiper as the the natives that he had deceived on the island, or on the island, in the Congo. In the Congo. What do you think, Brandon? Should he have told her? Well, I think he should have told her, but the thing is, is it's consistent with his character that he didn't. Yeah. Yeah. It it feels pretty inevitable that he did, right? It's, yeah, it's consistent with his character that he didn't. For one thing, you just don't have a good clincher for the story. I mean, yeah. if he doesn't, if he tells her, then it's just like okay. it is interesting that, and I think it fits no, in with the could, way that Marlowe. He could have done it. He could have done it and left her. And there, there are suggestions that he feels guilt over this because he keeps talking about women in the world that they live in, right? The little sweet worlds that they live in that are different than the man's world that they have. Their world that we have to protect and not burst their bubble. The other thing is he totally sets it up by 
asserting how much he hates lies and telling lies. That's at, right. Like yeah, two different right. points in the, and so he ends with a lie. There is a taint of death, a flavor of mortality and lies, which is exactly what I hate and detest in the world, what I want to forget, right? And so, yeah, he, he, you know that he feels guilt over the fact that this is the way his story ends, that he tells with this lie to this girl. Yeah, I guess I'm not arguing for it morally, obviously. I'm, I'm just arguing that I don't know that it's a complete act of cowardice. I think it might be an act of, you know what, I'm going to embrace the taint of death because I can do it and she can't. And maybe I'm an idiot. Maybe I'm a sexist for thinking that she can't. Maybe I don't care about her in some sense because I think she can't. But I don't know. I think there's something kind of noble about it in a very broken, compromised, the world sucks kind of a way. No, I think you have a point. I think in that world, I mean, as a man, you're around a mourning woman who you then have to tell her she wants to know in particular what the last words of her lover were. You're going to tell her the horror, the horror. <laughs> the horror. <laughs> you can say, oh, it was, it was your name. It was your name. Oh, <laughs> well, here, how about this? I don't know that I would do any better. Yeah. <laughs> I think I would probably do the same thing. <laughs> I'm not necessarily proud of that. There's a sadness and an guilt throughout the book about the compromises that you do have to take. The fact that he couldn't do more to save these people. The fact that he couldn't, in the end, when he was faced with whether or not to say the truth or a lie, he chose to lie. There is a sadness and a guilt, I think, that runs throughout the book. Part of why he needs to tell the story, right? Yeah, exactly. And so it's this it's a burden that he bears. Of all the it's, stories it's part of what makes tell. the story beautiful. Is It's just this man telling the story to these other people, and the other guys feel it too. They feel that there's this tension in the story, and they don't, he doesn't quite know why. And it's not necessarily just the power of Kurtz. It's just the power of the fact that Marlowe sees and understands the world like he does and it's it tells like a confession there they are on a boat at night he's unburdening himself he's spending a very interesting story but he's unburdening his his conscience he's telling things that he hasn't told the world like he could have destroyed kurtz's reputation he could have left exterminate the brutes on the pages that kurtz gave that he later submitted to the the company but he didn't and he does successfully tarnish the reputation of the company even though he doesn't share trade secrets which (laughs) i thought was funny it's kind of like the brutus known the antony he's such an honorable man right Right. (laughs) because brutus is an honorable man i thought of two shakespeare characters actually i I thought of brutus that same sort of uh or not brutus um mark antony not Mark Antony. Um, who's, who's the hero of that story, or the the protagonist of that play? Um, well, there's Brutus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is Brutus. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, the one who ends up compromising. And I thought of two Shakespeare characters, both of whom are compromised by being a lot more knowledgeable about human nature than anyone around them. That would be Brutus, and that would be Hamlet. And Hamlet's basically the story of a guy that's just like I see and understand everything, and nobody else does. And man, this sucks. And I'm gonna spend the whole play brooding about it. And that's kind of Marlowe. The tragedy of insight or something like that. Except I think in the end, Marlowe's a better person than Hamlet. Right. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't get all angsty about it. Right. Not not like a better character, but just a better person. Right. Because I think that in the end, he has more self-awareness than... That is the thing that that makes him different. And I do think makes him a lot like Levin, actually, is he has this self-awareness. He just knows himself. And yet Levin would have blurted out the truth like a moron at the very... He would have. He would have just been like, "Uh, she said the horror, the horror, bye. Maybe the... (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Probably. I think he totally would have. (laughs) I like to think... (laughs) Levin would have. What what am I trying to get at? 
Um, I think what you're getting at is that, oh, I don't know. I guess I want to say that Marlowe is compromised and there's a certain beauty in him doing the best that he can, but that sounds lame. I don't know. I mean... The book, Conrad knows that we're all compromised. Right. And that he's not a fool and he's not a saint. So right. in the end, he's tainted like everyone else. But... I mean, you guys are right. He's a good guy. I like him for his virtues. I like the fact that he can feel the the darkness whisper to him and then pull Kurtz back and so far as he's able and get out, get the heck out of Dodge. It's interesting. The ending there kind of kept a lot of the British people who read the book at the time from seeing themselves in the novel. Like the rest of it was just this interesting story because, oh, the end had a sweet little element of domesticity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's what they really clung to. So they wouldn't have to look at themselves in the earlier parts as condoning this imperialism that was, like you said, I mean, it was awful yeah. what was going on. And they didn't want to see that and they didn't want to face that. And so they clung on to this last sweet moment, which I mean, it's like a little short story. It reminds me of, what is it, the white elephants or whatever hills like white it elephants. Hills look white elephants, yeah. There's a lot going on in that little scene beyond just sweet domesticity. There's her foolishness, her unwillingness to look at it. Because she probably knows who Kurtz really was. If she really wanted to think about if it. If she wanted to think about it, yeah. yeah. She knows that he's a guy that made a bunch of promises and grand things and then went off and died in the jungle without yeah. her. She knows but that if... he's got a plausible... Marlo gives us a plausible reason for her to be hopeful about that, right? Mar- doesn't Marlo say that he's pretty sure that she's like way higher class That's and right. that he needed to go out and make a fortune? It's very. It would be very easy for her to cast all of his super intense endeavors to be like the best ivory guy that the company has is all about her that's right which then goes to the i'm remembering this right he does mention a couple times that the women have these precious worlds they live in right he's talking about his aunt originally but then he's he extends it to all womankind to say you know they they live in this little world if it, if it saw one day's light in the so there is these i mean i guess i've already made the point but there are suggestions throughout this whole thing that this one last thing this one lie that he tells her is really something he struggles with it's queer how out of touch with truth women are they live in a world of their own and there has never been anything like it and never can be it is too beautiful altogether and if they were to set it up it it would go to pieces before the the first sunset some confounded fact we men have been living contentedly with ever since the day of creation would start up and knock the whole thing over yep given the fact that that's what he believes perhaps stupidly i don't know he decides to not knock her story over with one (laughs) one fact it's the heart of darkness. Yep. <laughs> That's it. Are we what? done? No. <laughs> if this, I don't want to say the worldview. We want to avoid that word, right? right. Yes. If the worldview of this book was Christian, then yeah, you would expect him to say that to her or for that point to come out clearer. It's not, but it does have an understanding of the fallenness of the world, even though he doesn't understand it through the right perspective. So yeah, we would wish that were it a perfect world, he would have come to that conclusion, but he didn't. And Jake's right. And so he I mean, found the compromise that... Stupid fantasy world, it might kill her. I mean, yeah, it really might. exactly. And were this a good pastoral response to her, he would have shaken her out of it, but... But then he would have had to walk with her because... Yeah. The truth might as easily have killed her as the lie eventually will. Right. Yeah. The really cool ending would be him saying, eh, it was the horror, and then just walking away as she dissolves. Like, that would have been a good, that's what that's what, a, that's what an American hero might actually do. It's not what John Wayne would do, but it might be what Clint Eastwood would do. That's what Clint Eastwood would do. It was the horror. Just Chinatown. <laughs> yeah, it's Chinatown, Jake. 
Well, that is that is basically the ending. I mean, that, uh, I don't know. I think that that's where, if ambiguity is in this novel, it's especially right in moments like this where, to some extent, what he did made sense, but then it also tortures him mm-hmm. because he realized that he lied. And he has some moral backbone and he wishes he hadn't lied. And so the tension is there in the novel, and the novel asks us to read it this way. Right. He's lived with the stench yeah. of death. Yeah, Conrad doesn't. Conrad has Marlowe not like lying, right. and he has him continually just. Well, he's processing it too. Marlowe says that during that time he was still in this dream state, right? He hadn't recovered. He was a changed person and, di- and a different person. And there were times where he'd walk down the street and just sneer at everybody, right. blithely living their lives without knowing what he knew or seeing what he saw about you know what's at the heart of man. And so he's living this sort of dream and everywhere he goes he feels like he wants to just pop everybody's bubble and maybe part of the the moral is civilization itself is a pretty nice bubble actually to have because it restrains us from and maybe it's not such a bad thing that people are bickering over you know whatever he paid there's a little scene about people arguing about in the shops or in the streets about something petty or stupid maybe it's not such a bad thing I don't know. Maybe that's part of his point is, you know, this is a this this moment he has with the girl is a, a microcosm of the lie that civilization. I don't right. know. But maybe it's a yeah. useful lie. Yeah. yeah, it's a useful. It sounds familiar. Like we've talked about it before. No, there's something that's done this. But yeah, the civilization is a useful lie that it's a. Well, one thing that would be where I think he's, that's, that would be where he's just wrong. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree with you. Yeah. But, I totally agree with you. You have this old hardened sailor. He's seen the world. He knows what it is. But that for the better of other people, he doesn't go and he's not a prophet of it. Well, yeah. and also the one thing Marlowe can't do and never does at any point in the novel is he can't, I guess, in bearing his soul to his four friends on the boat, he's trying to make them understand. But you kind of get the sense that he doesn't even really know whether they're getting it or care whether they're getting it. He, he can never make anyone else understand. That's why I keep saying outsider. Like, he's always just like observing kind of at a distance. He's kind of standing outside of himself and watching the movie with these ridiculous people, his aunt, the manager, the the little black boy that's running the fire, you know, the cannibals. Um, and he's, there's, a, there's a certain detachment, true or false, there's a certain detachment to his Marlowe's outlook on life while having real compassion and real virtue. You're asking us if there is a detachment? Yeah, like the with his aunt, I, I got a little quote that I liked here. Um, she talked about weaning those ignorant millions, millions from their horrid ways till upon my word, she had made me quite uncomfortable. I ventured to hint that the company was run for profit, <laughs> which I really like. And then you have, I just wrote down some stuff that I thought was funny. I remember the old doctor saying, it would be interesting for science to watch the mental changes to individuals on the spot. I felt I was becoming scientifically interesting. Mm-hmm. So he's got these like funny, little quips again that's why i put them on the stupid lineage of american wisecracking heroes got this kind of a little bit of irony to the way he observes himself and observes everyone else mm-hmm. i buy that yeah there you go there's my answer yes, <laughs> yes. he's he's detached and not detached that's kind of the modernist hero isn't it that's yeah. robert jordan for sure that's, yes there is robert jordan i don't know who else we've read i mean that's what what's oh, his face huck in, Hemingway and Conrad would have made a devastating team, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did have that thought as I read. There was so much in the style that I loved, and then so much where I thought, if this were just the teeniest bit more Hemingway like cleaned up, 
it would be dialed yeah. up to 11 out of this I will, galaxy. I, <laughs> out of this <laughs> galaxy. galaxy <laughs> yeah. I will agree with you. I, I will also say more us deprecatingly that if maybe if our brains were dialed up to one more smartness level that we could appreciate like Victorian verbiage and a little bit of more clutter in our writing then well, we would like this as much as we like. I have no writing. doubt that on a second read, I, I, and and on I, a third I include myself read, in that. Like, I like Hemingway better because he's simpler and cleaner. But I wonder if that's just because I happen to live in the 21st century when everything's supposed to be. I live in a post-strunk and white world. Yeah. Well, I, I think no doubt on a second and third read that this is just that it gets better. What? No, no I mean, no, I, I agree. I said okay because I was shifting gears. Okay. Not because I was <laughs> like depressed at your answer. No, no, I thought it was a good answer. <laughs> it okay. sounded a little sad. You shut me down. <laughs> no, I didn't I did not mean to what? shut you down. Um no, I will I will open you up. Um I'm gonna poke it with a stick one more time and then I'll let it go. Is there anything I've said that's stupid? Irony detachment, did you not like that? Do you wanna do you wanna I just hadn't gone there in my mind yet. You know, I hadn't I didn't know I hadn't whether thought that way. You you keep wanting to put Marlowe in this uh, stock character mold, and I hadn't thought of him as a stock character. I think he I, predates I, the stock character, and probably the, you keep comparing him to westerns. But all of our westerns are would have been around before. I mean, this would have been like the time of the of Fenmore Cooper, like you said, and some yeah. of those. He was a big he was a big fan of Fenmore Cooper. So. Yeah, I mean, I guess when I say westerns, it wouldn't be Roy Rogers; it would be. John Wayne. It wouldn't even be John Wayne. It would be John Wayne's character from The Searchers, specifically, or or Clint Eastwood, maybe, or the Lonely. Yeah, but, but Robert Jordan man. and right. yeah, Robert Jordan, I guess, is a is a that guy. The kind of and Huck Finn and Huck Finn, the sufficient, hardworking, awesome guy that's a little bit of a loner, a little bit of an outsider, yep. a little cynical, a little hurt by life, a little compromised, but also ultimately heroic. Who's, who's seen things. Who's seen things, yeah, there you go. Nice, no, yeah, I think that's true. I don't, I'm not really saying that, like, the people that created all, like, all, that wrote the Humphrey Bogart movies were building on Heart of Darkness or cribbing from it. I'm just saying, in my mind, there's a connection there. I don't know. Makes for an interesting storyteller when they've lived a hard in life and then have s- something to say, so... I guess it just, I recognize it as a character that I like. Anytime I encounter this kind of a character who's like a little bit sarcastic, a little bit wounded, a little bit sees things better than everyone else, um, and somehow is almost punished for it. Like, you know, like it's just like it sucks to actually have, (laughs) see black and white where everyone else just like, or see gray where everyone else sees black and white, or I don't even know. No, that's why. It's why the Odyssey is so much funner. So much funner. It's why the Odyssey is more fun usually to read than the, the Iliad. Right. Because Odysseus is the one telling the story. Right. <laughs> and Odysseus, whatever we may think of him, Odysseus thinks Odysseus is great. Yeah, sure does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm awesome, dudes. <laughs> my wife better be faithful while I cheat on her with some goddess on an island and all my guys get killed constantly for me and... <laughs> talk about a morally compromised hero i don't know about that odysseus um all right well we've poked it with a stick well enough and successfully i think what about kurtz let's talk about kurtz did you guys feel any of that disappointment that i felt as a teenager with kurtz that he just like or did you think that that was the point was that he didn't live up to all the grand things yeah, that's, that he'd been in imbu- with by yeah well go ahead no i think that's the point is that he had this mythic 
legend to him already. And then once you see him, he's this small, dying, almost like he's... He's not small. He says he's like seven foot tall. Well, that's true. It's contrasted to his name, which means short. Is it in German? It is, yeah. But there's the sense that he's like withering away, right? That he's dying and he's sick. But his voice is still powerful. His voice is still powerful. That's what... It's the voice, the voice that he resonates and remembers. Right. And so there is this... I mean, obviously there's something about the man. He's... He's... um, Well, he's somehow... Imposing. ...to make himself a god to all these natives like yeah to the but not just to them once he gets back to england he's he should have been a politician no he should have been a musician he was just this generally amazing person who everybody he came into contact with just thought that he was larger than life conrad what he did was he gave marlo the opportunity to see him as just a man and for all of the mythical things about him to be sort of you know at twilight in the past done away with and so as real and as powerful as you imagine it to be and so what ends up happening is marlo is standing outside of things and you know even as kurtz dies or whatever but a lot of the i mean isn't the whole isn't kurtz still sort of like the impetus for all of his deep thoughts about humanity and mankind and the the darkness at the hearts of all of us like didn't kurtz still work something pretty fantastic on Marlowe, and isn't that part of the point too? So it's not that he's. And by the way, I don't necessarily agree with my stupid fifteen-year-old self here. I just thought it was a question worth asking. So in some sense, Kurtz really does have all the villainous powers and ascribed to him. We just don't happen to get there in time to to see it to see anything but the bitter. I mean, I think he really must, right? Like, it's pretty amazing. He's obviously changed Marlowe's life, changed this girl, and. Belgium's life changed the like, Russians life everyone has to it changed everybody yeah everybody in the company is sort of like the course of everything revolves around revolves Paris. around what happens to him and and the natives really he brings do in think more, he's a god or something like that yeah they really do worship him and he's got this like lover lady or something maybe that is a queen that's his queen or something or yeah you know maybe the I'm Russians quite really sure. jealous of for some reason yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, for obvious reasons. Right, well, yeah. <laughs> I was trying to be dainty about it, but yes. <laughs> well, and so it, it plays into the sense that Marlowe sort of kept wraps on this phenomena that was Kurtz and that maybe somebody else could also be or do. He's kind of like put something, a blanket on it or something. Right. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. Um is there anything else to say about Kurtz? I mean, I guess he's more of a symbol than a... Yeah, I mean, he's the symbol of the power that's at the heart of this novel. He's why, I mean, you could say he's a symbol of imperialism, of the, the way that power can corrupt good intentions, all these things that people talk about when they talk about Kurtz. He was always missing something, though, fundamentally from the beginning, though, right? Yeah, yeah. I have this the quote here. It was when he's talking about the heads on sticks when they come to Kurtz's encampment. I want you clearly to understand that there was nothing exactly profitable in those heads being there. They only showed that Mr. Kurtz lacked restraint in the gratification of his various lusts, that there was something wanting in him, some small matter which, when the pressing need arose, could not be found under his magnificent eloquence. Whether he knew of this deficiency himself, I can't say. I think the knowledge 
knowledge came to him at last, only at the very last, but the wilderness had found him out early and had taken on him a terrible vengeance for the fantastic invasion. I think it had whispered to him things about himself which he did not know, things of which he had no conception till he took counsel with this great solitude, and the whisper had proved irresistible fascinating. It echoed loudly within him because he was hollow at the core. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, that judgment is borne out and reflected in was it the journalist or the whoever was saying he would have made a great politician Mm -hmm. for which party oh it doesn't matter what were his views i'm not sure he had any but he would have been great as an extremist i think he was an extremist at heart like (laughs) it's just like he could have done he could have moved mountains for whatever he latched on to he didn't have any principles though yeah which is where comparing it to uh, that hideous strength is pretty inevitable i think he's a man without a chest he can be whatever he needs to be he's adaptable as long as he has he he has his words and he has his wits and he has his ability to sway his rhetoric if he's in civilization he's going to be president or king or whatever if he's in the jungle he's going to be the god to the natives he's the kind of guy that plato would have hated able to use his abilities and his large persona to sway crowds and become a demagogue no matter where he's at he could have been a Franz List with the music. He could have been a Bernie Sanders <laughs> or I guess a Donald Trump. Right. Long live the Trump. Long live the Trump. Yeah. I mean, a lot you could say about the way that he stands in as a metaphor for power and is that, but you guys, sure think, people can come to those conclusions on their own too. Right. <laughs> I mean, obviously as Christians, we believe that we believe in the depravity of man. We believe that we all have the heart of darkness apart from God's mercy on us. Do you guys agree with this conception of Marlowe as someone who was empty somehow and therefore the basic depravity or savagery, the, the great solitude of the jungle could whisper things that perhaps it whispered to Marlowe and they just kind of bounced off of him because Marlowe was a different sort of guy. Are those, there are those people like that out there like Kurtz? Yeah, I think so. I think one of them might be president. (laughs) (laughs) I think that there are people of great ability with absolutely zero principles and politics is a great place to find those kinds of people. You know, whatever is the path of least resistance to, to use their gifts of eloquence and their powers of persuasion to gain power they find it. And that's why you find politicians that flip-flop on, that's why politicians do flip-flop on issues and flip-flop parties, just as is convenient to them. There's just so rarely, the kinds of people that can get themselves in that position are people, of men, men of principle. Um, but yeah, I think they're all over the place. I think absolutely that kind of person put in the position that Kurtz found himself in with the right abilities would absolutely take advantage of a whole population of people the way that he did. Yeah, and then they would have used the same excuses he had. So in that sense, it's a brilliant portrayal of the downfall or the death of a demagogue, his final moments before he passes into the great darkness. And one of his last lines uh, being, I'm lying in the dark waiting for death. <laughs> Kurtz just says, I'm lying in the dark waiting for death. Then Marlowe kind of goes over and says, shut up or something, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. It's a candle right in front of you, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and then that's when he says, the horror, the horror, and then he dies. Right. <laughs> I think Conrad was an atheist. Is that correct, Brandon? I don't know. I mean, a popular, you couldn't just come out and say you were an atheist for the most part at the time, maybe. But 
but um there's no evidence that he was a christian right yeah we would articulate kurtz differently i think if we were writing about him i think we might make some allowance for the fact that everyone has their the knowledge of god and then they're somewhere so you're not it's kind of like the same problem that we had with talking about kathy it's like yeah some people's daddies don't love them when they become serial killers and some people's daddies don't love them and they become factory workers so there is a difference in how much the darkness can whisper to some people but i don't quite know how to put my finger on that and i don't know that marlon or uh, conrad asks well, you to because then there's the issue of his final words what's the horror what's he seeing himself right yeah and so the I, college student He's hollow, but then I think that Conrad is still saying that once you're faced with your death, even the most hollow person will see that... He's still left with the guilt and the... Yeah, I mean, like I said, guilt is the major theme of this book, and at the end, he can't do anything about it, and so it's just the horror. It's the heads. Apparently, they're all different. There are all sorts of people that they think that Kurtz is based on. He might actually be based on real figures. They're, I forget his name. But there was apparently a general who actually went out and had heads on stakes around his huts and some pretty horrific things that he did. And so this was kind of Conrad's condemnation of that sort of power and the empty rhetoric that governments use and people in power use to take advantage and use their power for evil purposes. So whether it's for uh, what was the uh, philanthropy, that's the word Dickens hated. Mm Mm-hmm. He was all he he hated the philanthropic movements because you know they just led to these empty charities that really didn't do anything. Right. And so you see the similar things here: the big sweeping ideas of improving the inferior races just ends up just like the ivory trade just ends up taking advantage of them, and you have them dying horribly while building a railroad. The philanthropic or the educational move also just ends up you oh, have power over them with one of the beautiful maids as your wife and the heads of your enemies on stakes (laughs) they all go to the same place yeah yeah i mean i guess i'm sure we've it's a hackneyed phrase and i don't know whether we've probably taught used it before but it's the it's the banality of evil isn't it it's just like the you expect i certainly as a 14 15 year old whenever i was read this book i expected this grand faustian guy you know that had sold his soul to the devil and he was just going to be this really cool shakespearean villain you know that marlo was going to be pitted up against a little bit more like what Marlon Brando is in the movie. Um, he said Faustian. I really love that he called the Russian a, what, a paper mache Mistopheles. <laughs> paper mache yeah. Mistopheles. Yeah, that was, was pretty funny. awesome. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great line. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's to Conrad's credit that he doesn't give us that. Yeah. No, I right? think We get the whole myth, but then we get the man as he's dying. And that I think it fits in with the story he's telling, but also the fact that what we want is we want to see Walter White while Walter White is strong. Mm -hmm. But all instead, all we get is Walter White while he's dying in the car at the end. Well, that's what makes the ending of Breaking Bad suck so much is that they couldn't commit to this. I mean, I like Breaking Bad. I like the ending even because I sort of like seeing Walter White pull one last awesome Faustian, as I should have pronounced it, caper and blow away all the Nazis and be the cool Walter White. But I think they sort of sold the series out when they they gave us that because the real point that they were driving towards is that being Walter White is sucks and Walter White is a very petty, banal guy. And he should have ended alone in a cabin with his 
family taken away from him or something? Yeah, I don't know. Or maybe he should have ended on his way to the, maybe, uh, the real way to end Breaking Bad. If we just want to talk about Breaking Bad for a moment, probably the way to end Breaking Bad is to end. If you want to go with the super dark, depressing ending, it's him in the cabin paying the guy thousands of dollars just to play checkers with him. If you want to go with the slightly less depressing, but still satisfyingly tells a good story ending, it would be you end it before that episode. You just end with him going away, leaving his family in tatters, his brother-in-law dead. Spoilers for Breaking Bad. Which you shouldn't need because there are better things to watch on TV. (laughs) (laughs) Intentional spoilers for Breaking Bad. Watch uh, Family Matters. Fuller House. Yeah, Fuller House. Available now. There you go. Nah, I'm just kidding. Watch, uh, I don't know. Game of Thrones. No, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait. People rely. True Blood. (laughs) No, no. People rely on us for critical opinions, guys. What should they watch? They should read books. They should read books. Oh. Listen to great podcasts. They should. Um, <laughs> I don't know, but it was sure was fun when Walter White blew away all those Nazis. So, yay. Yeah, but that's the, just like he doesn't give you the itch of Marlowe pulling out the machine gun and blowing away all the bad guys and then going off and establishing some peaceful society with the natives, right? Right. <laughs> you don't get that. You also don't get Kurtz winning and becoming the big, like getting his, he doesn't take his revenge on, he doesn't get back to the bonfire so that he can tell the natives to go and kill all the pilgrims and the corporate men either. He doesn't feed into your fantasies. Yeah, it's not one of these dumb, dark TV shows like the ones we were just talking about where it's just like evil wins and darkness yeah. wins and the world is dark, man. And But it's also not like... Hashtag grittiness. Not, right, yeah. Gritty, gritty reality. <laughs> Kurtz, the Kurtzes are the ones that win. If you're a Marlowe, you'll lose. So it's not fakely gritty like The Walking Dead and all that right. stuff. And it's also not angsty postmodern real man either it's just this is probably how it would have actually played out and here's what this says about kurtz and here's what it says about power you know into this sense it does feel a lot like the realism of tolstoy in the sense that the way things play out there just sort of seem inevitable and the story tells you why the meaning that you should get out of it yeah and i think the only moment that and maybe this is why i had to poke it with a stick so much the thing with the lady at the end is the one thing that feels like this is a choice that the writer's making now and why is he making that choice and is it a good choice everything else i think up to that point feels well the only reason i think it's a fine choice is because i think that that's the thing that still tortures marla yeah i think that's true it's like it's his mistake he made right and that's so, certainly why he bears the guilt of the whole thing yeah i guess there's one more question i have to ask is the novel racist Terribly racist. You shouldn't read it. Okay. Every character's named Cotton. (laughs) (laughs) Is this novel as racist as Boys of Blur? I shouldn't have taken us that direction. (laughs) Let's back up. Well, Chumbawamba (laughs) is not a big fan of this novel. No, Chumbawamba wasn't. He's famously said that Conrad was a bloody racist. And he admitted that the novel was anti-imperialist showing how... But he said it's anti-imperialist because it shows how white men degenerate and start acting exactly like the brutes that they've... You know what? Civilizing. I think all these claims of racism, they might have gotten Conrad down, but I think he'll get up again. I don't think you're ever going to keep him down. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Thank you. Nicely done. <laughs> is it 
Is it racist? <laughs> hey, it's a question, people. The people I mean, want to know, Jay. Here's, here's the question. My answer would be, was the British Empire racist? <laughs> yes. And were most people, including people who were fairly good people, going to be racist? Yes. Uh, yeah. And so, therefore, was Marlowe racist? Yeah. But Marlowe, to and me, seems about as unracist as a person at the time could be. He's yeah, yeah much, and that's the answer. And that's a fine answer. He's a man of the world. He, 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 you know, he the has some The whole point is he's asking the question. He's He's got... You know, maybe he's starting out with very racist presuppositions, but he's sitting there and he's thinking out loud as he's telling this story. These are these are men. Yes. Right. Right. These are men. What separates this man from me? And he's trying to get at and so he sees the humanity in the people of Africa and he's trying to wrap his head around what what's the difference between me and this man and why are we treating them this way? And right. why do we feel like we have the right to sit on the end of the boat and just pick them off for sport what is what's going on here and and he's processing it through the lens of kurtz being completely degenerate and who's the bigger savage who's the bigger monster it clearly kurtz is the monster right who goes in the monster squad here right it's kurtz and marlo marlo is telling us that the monster and the villain of this whole story is kurtz and it's us. These are people. And we're taking all of the tools. If he were a Christian, he would say, we're taking all of the, the, the tools that God has given us in the West, all of the, the heritage of Christendom, and we're using it to oppress men and women made in the image of God. How dare we? There will be hell to pay for this. And then we're That's going what he back would to say. civilization, yeah, but, and we have the gall to put this veneer over it. Of, yep. And of, pretend that we're being noble, mm-hmm. philanthropic. Right. I, would, I would say the... Candidate for the Monster Squad is the British Empire. The whole, the whole, <laughs> the whole the, British Empire, the whole the machinery. The, Belgian. the people I want on the yeah. Monster Squad are those idiots firing their guns. And those are the ones that made me the most mad, just like... Shooting at that woman right at the end? Yeah, just shooting at that woman and shooting at the... Yeah, yeah I mean, you're. I guess it's. you're supposed to assume she's killed. There's too much smoke. Marlo can't yeah. see. But, but they're she's shooting the only right one that's still standing there, right? Yeah. Right. And so they all she's run clearly off. the one that everybody's going to take aim at. I mean, those guys are just... Those are the real cowards, man. Yeah, and so if you think about the portrayal of Africans in the novel, you see them either dying or you see the tribes yelling and hollering but we know that that's probably what they would have really done so i don't know what would be racist about well it. i think what um old chinua chinua what makes it racist what, what achebe would say is that he, he's painting them all as savages and it's yeah, yeah. it's it's paternalistic it's paternalistic and, and it's condescending so he's paternalistic with the people that he interacts with like the guy on the like at one point he compares him to a puppy or a dog or something like that like he felt like the loyalty like right that's he's a man he's not a dog right and then he doesn't do any work to portray any of like the beauty or the glory or the wonderful uniqueness of the african tribes that he or there's you know, no inherent was there actually music and, was there actually mm. beauty was there actually art was there actually anything great that they were just destroying from in conrad there's none of there isn't anything good right and that's what Achebe would probably be. That's exactly what he said, is that even though Conrad understands the evils of imperialism perfectly, he's also very condescending and very racist and bigoted in the way that he's portraying these native peoples as just like little puppy dogs at best. Sure, you want to give the puppy a biscuit when it's hurt, but great. That would be what he would say. Is there anything to that? Yeah. I mean, in insofar as that was the view of the British Empire at the time, sure. I'm not sure that that condemns the novel, I, though. But... The whole trying to whitewash the tribes of Africa as something wonderful or great 
is you know it what is superior to western civilization somehow right i yeah, call i call garbage it's, like, a fr- it's a really irritating trend in post frustrating angering trend in post-colonialism that they i think i mentioned it before and i can't remember the name of the stupid book but it's this book by a mexican-american writer and we had to read it because it talked about the dignity of them seeing a godfish in the water and it's beautiful and here come the white man and oh no let's talk about the dignity of this ray it's just it's really stupid and so i think if conrad has anything he's an equal opportunity hater hater (laughs) he sees the evil in both societies he's not out to prove the dignity of anybody yeah i think that's fine I think, I think, which I think is kind of what you were getting yeah, at. That's yeah, that's exactly what yeah. you were getting at. I think. Yeah. I mean, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with the idea that good, smart Marlowe-like guys could go and help civilize and change the bad things about this culture. Which is what you know. I don't think that there's. I don't know. Maybe I can't say this on mic, but I don't think that there's anything inherently dignified about a very savage non-christian culture there's something perverse about a a christian culture that is gone to seed but there's also something terribly perverse about a uh, and i don't know that marlowe's satanic about a culture that would worship Kurtz, yeah and hasn't yet had the gospel right you know i mean this is what you have to do when you look at so much of western history is you have to be able to look at things in sort of through the eyes of of Joseph. You meant it for evil and God meant it for good. There was a lot of awful, inexcusable wickedness. And at the same time, David Livingston was there, right? And he wasn't doing bad things. He was doing good things. And there were people doing good things. And it's not bad to bring penicillin or lights or you know even let's just even take it a step back from you know the gospel although that is the most important thing we could bring them but i mean the idea that there's some inherent dignity in being a naked person in the jungle there's just not that's just a lie that multi multiculturalism wants to tell you these days but i just think it's really stupid well you had the idea at the time you had rousseau with the noble savage, the, noble savage the white man's yeah. burden, all that kind of thing. And Conrad clearly shows you the lie, and he does a good job of showing the stupid, evil... Well, because... You should just be able to acknowledge both sides hypocrisy. of it. Hypocrisy. Just acknowledge, acknowledge that there, there was infinite hypocrisy and lots of wickedness that was whitewashed under the guise of, you know, the white man's burden. But I, people want to say that it's racist for Marlowe to be th- saying the whole time, I feel like I'm going into prehistory. I feel like... I'm surrounded by this weird, and it's like, no, you're right. You are going into prehistory. This is weird. Like, you know, it's really weird. This to is be uncivilized. Among a people that is uncivilized. Yeah. If you've grown up in the West. It's just weird. It's weird to conceive of. For goodness sake, we still have National Geographic, right? And they still put pictures for us Westerners of these tribes. That why do they do that? Because it's weird and interesting to us, right? It's it's different, and it's not. You know, I want to see those people come to know Jesus and I want to see their cultures transformed by the gospel the way that God transformed the West. I think that's a good thing to aspire to. And it doesn't have to look exactly like the West, but God did something pretty amazing in the West and we should never apologize for it. We can apologize, I guess, for all of the wicked things that were done under the guise of Christianity, but we're not saying it's good to it. Guess what? Lots of wickedness was done all over the world under the guise of Lots of other, uh, without guys. Right. (laughs) At least where you have Christianity, you have the virtue of hypocrisy. Some sense that there should be principles, like some sense that Kurtz should have principles, and he doesn't, and that's a problem. 
He has no restraints. That's a problem. Where would he get those restraints from? Where should they come from? They come from God. That's it. That's the grounding that you have to have. And you know, you read this book and you you can come unmoored in a book like this if you don't have a strong foundation. I when I finished, I went and I and I opened and I read Ecclesiastes. <laughs> because, you know, what you get is meaningless, meaningless here. But without any mooring, without any foundation in the fact that no God made the heavens and the earth and he made man. And he gave man dignity, made man in his image. And yes, man is fallen. But there... <laughs> well, and you do have the, the the one mooring that you do have, the one thing you do know is that Kurtz, Marlowe, and Conrad all feel this disquietude, this unease with the tension there. They can't live with it. None of them. They're all made in the image of God and they all know there's something wrong. And Kurtz, at the end of the day, doesn't crawl back into the satanic womb of darkness and lets Marlowe talk him out of it and then dies a sad, banal death. And Marlowe is guilty and trying to get this story off of his chest because he had to tell a lie because he didn't understand how civilization could work. He doesn't understand the savagery and the darkness that's in the heart of every civilization, whether it be London or the the heart of the Congo. And um, so, racist? Human. Human. That's a good answer. <laughs> Human. No, I, think I mean, that, like uh, if it, he's, a, he's a man in his time, and we all are. Yeah, and I just and, thought there was some kind of charming moments of Marlowe. Marlowe seems like a really cosmopolitan kind of a cosmopolitan in the best sense. It's just a man of the world who kind of knows and respects and is cynical in equal parts about everybody. You know, he kind of, there's the part where the cannibal, <laughs> they hear the people and he says, what would you do if we uh, got one of them? And the cannibal just kind of smiles and says, eat them. And Marlowe understands the joke. Well, he said the whole point, I think I mentioned it, the whole point of his art is to at least make you see. Mm-hmm. And so I think the word human is very fitting for Conrad, because at the end, he just wanted you to see the world as it is. And so how was he going to see the world? He was going to see it as someone from the British Empire who had actually been to Africa and had seen the evils that were there and who had perception and who had sympathy and who had real discernment and concern for other people would have seen the world. And that's how he wrote the book. He's trying to pop the bubble that Marlowe couldn't bear to pop for the girl or for anybody. But I guess the three people on the boat or the three people still awake on the boat. But Conrad's popping the bubble for us. Right. Yep. And showing us the value of story while doing it, right? (laughs) (laughs) And the value of some fantastic writing. So does the Card of Darkness get the coveted booketing seal of approval? Oh, unreservedly, yes. Without question. What's that? Without question. Without question. I guess that just means we should uh, play the music and do the credits, right, guys? That's right. All right, guys. That was a good episode. Oh, no! I'm falling down the trap door! Oh, oh no. kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we moved rooms for this reason. Lock the doors. <laughs> He's still falling. I think the hole got longer this time. Oh, now I wonder what's going to happen. This seems One can only guess. <laughs> I'm getting a sense of deja vu. <laughs> oh. Hey, guys. Look, How's it going? Look. It's me, Nathan. That sure was a long drop down the whole trap door that I fell down. <laughs> okay. Do you guys want to talk more about... Uh, what are you guys talking about today? What's going on here? <laughs> this is Con- we're talking about Conrad. It's me, your friend. 
Nathan Alberson, yeah. you guys don't recognize me? No. No. <laughs> what happened? What happened is I fell down a trap door. What happened to your voice? <laughs> it sounds exactly like me, Nathan Alberson, the person that I am. Right, guys? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I kind of see it in your hand gestures. <laughs> That's right. I am exactly like Nathan. Except for I'm not. <laughs> oh. It's actually me, the mysterious <laughs> phantom here. I had an idea. You fell for my charade, you fools. Charade. Huh? It's you again, huh? <laughs> you idiots. It's not me at Nathan. It's, it's not Nathan at all. It's the mysterious <laughs> phantom. You fell for my perfect play acting. You did yeah. a great job, yeah. Man, yeah. you're so amazing. You certainly have egg on your face now. I really should clean up more better after breakfast. I'm sorry. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> you said I have egg on my face. Badly, I don't like that at all. <laughs> I'm going to talk to the Reverend Mensel now. <laughs> Mensel, I fooled you. Uh-huh, yeah. And now I am back. It's me, the mysterious phantom, fan favorite. Of at least one nine-year-old. <laughs> you both have an appointment with Doom. Oh, okay. if this goes anything like last time, I'm not too worried. How did you escape from that? Uh, yeah, didn't you fall? M- mental, didn't he get oh, yeah, committed? Yeah. He got committed, right, into a mental yeah, institution? Out on good behavior, baby. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Model patient. I'm working a job. I've cleaned up my life. Got a nice job at Walmart. All right. Cashier. Walmart, huh? Very evil organization. Fits my fits my MO very rather well, I think. Yeah. Anyway, I'm here to take horrible revenge on you. Oh, oh no. Oh. For what? You have defaced and defamed a great literary work. And now that I've cleaned up and I like podcasts, I listened to your podcast. I was enjoying it very much. I very much liked uh, Bradley. I I enjoyed the episodes on um, As I Lay Dying. I found fascinating. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) Yes, Bradley. (laughs) I'll take Bradley. Then you had to go and touch the immortal A.A. Milne. Oh. And his classic. Not so immortal anymore. (laughs) (laughs) After we got through with him. That's right. You tried to, you put your knives in A.A. Milne, and you dared pitch your wits against his classic of Winnie the Pooh. Is that what we did? Huh. Anyways, I, I, I heard you were talking about Heart of Darkness. Yes. And uh. I just wanted to sing the praises of a certain critic, Joanna Smith. Huh. Okay. Okay. And she wrote... An article, I think the premiere article upon Heart of Darkness called Feminist and Gender Criticism and Heart of Darkness. Oh, Oh, that's awful. I'm I'm sure. (laughs) It's not awful. It's wonderful. I would go so far as to say Miss Joanna Smith may be the future Mrs. Phantom. Let me read to you the dulcet tones of Miss Smith. Can can you read somebody's dulcet tones? (laughs) (laughs) Yes! (laughs) Yes! <laughs> mm, listen to this. A story about manly adventure narrated and written by men? Heart of Darkness might seem an unpropitious subject for feminist criticism. Oh, oh, oh really? Yeah, I bet. <laughs> However, two colonializing ide- ideologies operate in Conrad's story, and a feminist reading can in- interrogate those interrelated ideologies of gender and empire. To do such a reading is to engage in a feminist critique of ideology, for, quote, feminist thinking is really re-thinking. What? 
An examination of the way certain assumptions about women and the female character enter into a fundamental assumptions that organize all our thinking. Such rethinking about Heart of Darkness reveals collusive imperatives of empire and gender. Marlowe's narrative aims to colonize and pacify both savage and dark women. I really you hate f- you right now. <laughs> you hate me? <laughs> the mysterious phantom? Go away. <laughs> I thought maybe you had been stricken dumb by the brilliance of Joanna M. Smith's prose. Oh, you mean where she told us that looking at a story about men is maybe not the obvious place for women to think about the lack of women, but actually it's the perfectly fine place to think about it. It's just stupid. <laughs> I'm a little stunned by those remarks, actually. I'm going to admit it. I find that to be hurtful. And Well, that was a perfect example of how a lot of academic writing is just them finding a overly obtuse way to describe the obvious that is perfectly boring and unnecessary to talk about in the first place. You are accusing Joanna M. Smith, the beautiful, my beloved Joanna, of obviousness and stupidity? Well, she certainly doesn't think she's obvious and stupid, but... What she's saying is that a stu- That's right. She doesn't. <laughs> Neither does but, any. But, but we can rethink her writing to realize that she's obvious and stupid. You can't, you can't rethink other people's writing. <laughs> well, she's trying to rethink Conrad's That's writing. That's not what she's doing at all. It's what she said she was doing. What she was saying was that a story primarily about men might not seem like the place to look for feminist or female ideologies. And yet, for Joanna M. Smith, it is! It's brilliant! Isn't that where feminists always look for feminist ideologies? Is in, in things and stuff, in everything! That are particularly dominated by men. I don't understand what you mean. <laughs> you have to explain. Hey, Phantom, why don't you tell us what you like about that quote and why, it's, uh, why it matters? Because it's brilliant! <laughs> what makes it brilliant, exactly. Just listen to it. No, 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 we already listened to it. Just listen to it again. <laughs> I want to listen to it again, please. A story about manly adventure would... narrated and written by men, Heart of Darkness, might seem an unsuspicious oh. subject for feminist criticism. As my epigraph suggests, however, there's an epigraph, I didn't read that to you. Two colonizing ideologies operate in Conrad's story, and a feminist reading can interrogate interrelated ideologies of gender and empire. Now, what don't you fellows understand about the interrogation of interrelated ideologies of gender and empire? You, Reverend Menzel. Yeah. Surely you must understand the dulcet tones of Joanna M. Smith and how she simply wants to interrogate the interrelated the interrelated ideologies of gender and empire. So, tell me about... <laughs> yes, I'm perfectly willing. <laughs> tell me about the uh, ideologies of gender and empire, please. We have women, and they are, of course, cast in the novel as completely docile, domestic creatures. I'm paraphrasing Miss Smith here. But, um, you know, Marlowe's very condescending towards them, saying, you know, if, we, if women were ever able to bring their thoughts into the world, then they would collapse like a house of sticks or something like that. And, you know, Marlowe has to lie to the woman at the end because women are just wonderful little domestic creatures that go about their domestic lives. And then you've got the savage women, woman and Marlowe doesn't really view her as as any sort of a she's just a trophy a prize a thing with a lot of ivory on her which is all is she the savage woman yeah i don't know that's what joanna smith said can't you think for yourself no joanna smith thinks for me well there's your first problem it's not a problem it's a beautiful relationship that i have with smith smith but (laughs) but uh, 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 uh. don't you guys find this 
this this work that Conrad wrote to be just a bit condescending towards women. You tell me, Phantom. <laughs> Where is it condescending towards women? It, for one thing, there's no women in the story. Except for a stupid aunt and that stupid girl at the end and that native girl that doesn't say anything. So I find that the women are very unrepresented, uh, underrepresented. So I guess this was also condescending towards children. In, in, it's possible. Well, you tell me, was it? Well, the, and I also think, I want to say that there are only Belgians and... Africans, Congolese, what, I think it's pretty condescending towards the British Empire. Or, uh, uh, definitely the Americans. And the Americans aren't anywhere at all. There's nobody I see from Asia. Condescending towards Asians. Man, this is a pretty... Yeah, you're right. It's racist. It's completely racist. I feel like you guys are mocking and, my point of view. Well, <laughs> in, in you know, you're really approaching this from a very binary perspective here because you're only talking about men and women when it comes to gender, but you, where are the transsexuals and where are the, you know, where's everybody else on the spectrum? Oh, yeah. Well, exactly. What's why, why aren't you concerned about them? What's and how do you know that they're not there? Who? The lady who wrote this article. Jo- Joanna M. Smith. Yeah, she's pretty insensitive, isn't she? Yeah. She only cares about the plight of women? I'm yeah, sure jo- Joanna, pretty sexist, actually. Joanna M. Smith, I'm sure, understands, as we all do, the spectrum of gender. She doesn't outline it, and she seems to hold Conrad to that standard, so let's hold her to it, too, right? You're going to hold her to a standard? Doesn't she want to hold Conrad to a standard? You're saying it works both ways. Yeah. <laughs> whatever standard... Whatever Sexist pr- pigs! <laughs> both of you! If she doesn't want the principle turned on her, then she's just hollow. That's what a sexist pig would say. Now what would a reasonable person say? (laughs) Try being reasonable, Bradley. If she has a principle that she wants to use and is unwilling for it to be turned against her. And and what is this principle? That if something's not represented, then therefore it must be what? Then the author must be prejudiced towards that thing. Well, we all know, for instance, that there's no Martians in the novel. Yeah. I wouldn't say that Conrad's a racist against Martians. Why not? Because why would there be Martians in the Congo? But at the time, women... I mean, this isn't Pirates of the Caribbean. But it could be! Yeah. It could be. <laughs> Karen Knightley could be in this! Yeah. Just there could also it. be Martians there. Yeah. Wouldn't that have been something? No, that would be stupid. There could have also been transsexuals there. No I mean, come on, let's really time. let's really ask. Well, how do you know? I mean, come nobody. on, let's bank. If we only want the most progressive stuff, right? Look, what Joanna M. Smith is saying is that she needs to make a living somehow or another, and she's found her shtick. Yeah, she doesn't need to make a living. Oh, once she gets once she gets that sweet sh- phantom sugar money, <laughs> she just needs to find the right man. She just needs to find the right man. I, I think she needs to listen to more podcasts, perhaps this one, and hear me thoroughly trouncing the both of you in this argument. <laughs> Sexist pigs. Let me just read one more quote from Miss Smith here. Oh, oh, here we go. Feminists stress that while all women are female, they are something else as well. <laughs> Such as African American, lesbian, or Muslim Pakistani. Yeah, let's categorize people. <laughs> Those are really symmetrical categories, too. <laughs> Some are serial killers. Very much doubt that. Some are liars. Very much doubt that as well. What's your point? Why, why that quote? I don't understand. <laughs> Phantom. It just jumped out at me! <laughs> Brilliant, yeah. Well. I mean, as we all know, females are f- females. <laughs> yes. And some of them have black skin. Some of them have white skin. Racist! Some, some of them have religious convictions and some of them don't. Yeah. Thank you, Miss Smith. 
for once again stating the obvious and making it sound like it's some sort of political thing. Here's the actual quote I was looking for. You can both shut up now. That the laundress is silenced indicates Marlowe's power as the masculine narrator of his story to conceal not only her story, but those of the other silent women in Heart of Darkness. What? I, I didn't follow that at all. The whose story? Is, is that a name for, like, the woman? The laundress. The laundress. She's the person that the, um, I don't know, I, I didn't actually read the novel, but there's this guy... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He teaches, he's taught her to do the laundry. That's he's why taught her to do And she's silenced. So we don't actually hear her point of view. We don't actually really even hear Marlo's well, guess point what? of view. Or woman's, the, the woman. We only see Marlo's perspective on Guess it. what? Um, and that's rather limiting, isn't it? Well, you want to know. Marlo is telling the story. And therein you know what? lies the problem. You're right. Men should stop being men. Then the unreliable narrator really troubles us because you know who this really, who really doesn't get to voice their opinion? The capitalists. Mm. I mean, they are really seen as being pretty bad. And I mean, I really wish they had a chance to just get up on a platform and tell us who they really are. We should have had Leopold's perspective on the whole thing too, don't yeah, you think? I mean, I'm sure he could have really convinced us that he wasn't such a bad guy after all. I feel like you guys could be mocking me with irony or you might be agreeing with me. Yeah, just depending think. on how I interpret what you just said. And I choose to believe that you agree with me. You got us. Congratulations. You got us, Phantom. <laughs> you're very smart. <laughs> very enlightened. Bradley, I think you're most enlightened of all. Thank you. Mental, I find you to be less enlightened. <laughs> uh good. <laughs> it's good. But anyway, I'm I'm just here to say um I love both of you guys. It's good. Good. Thanks. Pin could, could hear a pin uh, <laughs> drop in that silence. <laughs> I'm just hoping that we can be friends. I'll take I'll take your deafening silence as a yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And that I can be featured on this podcast every week in Nathan's stead. Well, you know what? Maybe we could come up with an arrangement that would be mutually beneficial. Here's my proposal. I do the podcast. Bradley chimes in occasionally. Mental stands in the other room and cries. That's... that's. How does that strike you fellows? (laughs) Thank you, Bradley. I've got an idea. We give you your own very special podcast, and we put it in a very special place. Where would this special place be? Behind this magical wall we refer to as the paywall. Behind the paywall? Behind the paywall. It's 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 your own magical land of make-believe. What, what happens there? Is Bradley there? Well, you get to run the show. I want Bradley to be there every week. Well, that's between you and Bradley. Bradley? It's between us. <laughs> Will you join me behind the paywall? I hear it's a magical place. <laughs> Let's just say if you believe I'll be there, then it's possible. I choose, based on your words and the way you're acting, to believe you'll be there every week. Good. And loving every minute of it. Good. And um, let's not tell Menzel. Let's leave him outside the paywall. Yeah. It's a pretty dreary world outside the paywall, I think. Bleak and gray. Bleak and gray. But you say that behind the paywall is magical? It's magical. What, what's, what kind of magical things are there? Well, there's all kinds of uh, secret 
things that go on behind the paywall that are we talking about goat sacrifice here <laughs> no we're just talking. do you like goat sacrifice when someone says secret things my mind always immediately jumps to goat sacrifice well i'm you're a very strange person would goat sacrifice make this more appealing frankly sounds kind of disgusting and i'm ashamed that you brought it up <laughs> then well, there's no goat sacrifice behind the paywall zero goat sacrifice <laughs> zero goat sacrifice you heard it here first. goat sacrifice free <laughs> I suppose I could be persuaded. How much does it pay? Nothing. Brilliant! <laughs> you get to... I already make like $8 an hour at Walmart, fellas. So I will do my own show behind the paywall. This sounds wonderful. And I, I there will be unicorns. Now, if, if, if listeners that are listening to this right now wanted to join me behind the paywall, how would they do that, Mensal? Uh, they'd go to patreon.com forward slash the bookening and pledge it to give at least $4 a month to support this podcast right here that's on the other side of the paywall. And also, more importantly, to support my podcast. Right. your po- It's really all about your podcast behind the paywall. Yeah. It's the only way they get access to it. That sounds like a pretty good deal. It's like a golden ticket. I'll start doing episodes right now. Great. Hello, and welcome to the Phantoms Behind the Paywall show. I'm joined here by Bradley. Hello, Bradley. Hey, Phantom. Welcome behind the paywall. It's great to be here. What do you want to talk about today, Bradley? Should I should I go in another room and cry? You or? can cry right there. It's okay. Okay, Stop. okay. Just start crying. <laughs> so, Bradley. I, I, hey. How do you feel about the tears of your enemies? Oh, <laughs> they're bittersweet. Oh, so you actually drink the... That's kind of weird. <laughs> so you drink... How do you drink the tears of your... Enemies? Enemies, yes. I usually ask them to cry over a chalice that I have always with me. And they're your enemies, and yet they're willing to do this? Uh, yeah, I mean... How do you how make them cry? Do you tell them a sad story or something? The sad story of my upbringing. Oh, what happened to you in your upbringing, Bradley? I'm so sorry. It's a long story. We have all the time in the world here behind <laughs> oh, the paywall. Oh, boy. <laughs> Hello? Yes? Beatrice, cancel my next six hours worth of appointments. Oh. I'm listening to a story. I thought Beatrice was your dead wife. It's also the name of my secretary. <laughs> it's possible I'm confused. <laughs> anyway, go on with your story, Bradley. The next six hours are free. Oh, boy. Just you and me. Just me and you, huh? And Mensel crying in the corner. He just looks devastated <laughs> over there. My dad was a political activist. <laughs> Your dad was a political activist. Yeah, and we were sent to exile, and my mom got tuberculosis, and she died. And then a few years later, my dad got tuberculosis, and he died. Wow, yeah. that must have been very hard on you. I was sent to a canning factory as a young child. A canning factory? Yeah. And what happened next? I learned how to fight, worked my way up to almost defeating the heavyweight champion, but was knocked out. I ate a lot of raw eggs. No wonder you had egg on your face. Yeah, I know. Still there. It's hard to get that off. It yeah. stains deeply. Bookending today was written and produced by Nathan Alverson. It was performed by Brandon Chasteen, Jake Mensel, and you can go to warhornmedia.com for all kinds of wonderful things. You can also go on Twitter and um, uh, Instagram and Facebook for all kinds of other wonderful things. 
And you can go to patreon.com forward slash the booking to support this podcast. 